right, we are going to be continuing in our series on Exodus, and now we come to the ten plagues, the ten signs, uh, and this really is a part of the story that takes place over a lot of chapters, seven to twelve, and so we're not going to, uh, if you're used to our, our rhythm where we stand and read scripture together, we're not going to stand while I read five chapters of the Bible out loud. Um, so what we're going to do with this section of the story of Exodus is take a couple weeks and look at all of the chapters together, but look at different components of this story as we move through to understand this section of Scripture and why this is so important and, and such a key moment in the biblical narrative. Uh, and so rather than standing to read Scripture together, if instead you just please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, your power, your omnipotence. God, it is... It should be awe-inspiring to contemplate. So humble us, drive us to our knees in reverence and in recognition of your majesty. Thank you for the chance to worship through music and thank you for the chance to worship through engaging with your word. May this continue to be a praise. May this continue to be an offering to you. God, get rid of me entirely. Please, Lord. May these be your words. May our people listen with, with ears opened by you, with hearts softened by you. Make us like Christ. Sanctify us constantly. It is so awesome to be the church, to be adopted by you. So may all of this be just a, an outpouring of praise and gratitude and testimony to Christ, to our Lord. It's in his name that we have the right to stand before your throne. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we see in, in Exodus 7 to 11, I know I said 7 to 12, but 12 has such a beautiful moment uh, that we looked at way back, or we foreshadowed, rather, we previewed back in the introduction to Exodus. So we're going we're gonna to treat 12 as its own. So really looking at 7 to 11, these chapters, remember the theme of God is greater than, because you're going to see that pop up time and time again in this part of Scripture. And so as we look at these chapters, the first thing that we see is something that I, I believe is very relevant for us today because it can really trip us up and it can really throw us for a loop, uh, especially when the rug feels like it gets pulled out from us. And that's when something that seemed to be true is revealed to be false, right? Like, wait a minute, they're listed under the Christian music section. Wait a minute, their books are in the Christian author section of Barnes and Noble. They said what? And that really can shock us. And so the first thing that we see in these 10 plagues, in these 10 signs, is that a lie can imitate truth. And it can imitate truth for a sustained period of time. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be a one-off imitation. We'll see that a lie can repeatedly imitate truth. But the really, really great thing, the really, the really cool thing is that Eventually, the lie is revealed to be false. Eventually, the lie is brought into the light. So listen to these sections in Scripture as we go through these signs. This is chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we see God, with his power, turns Aaron's staff into a serpent. The magicians, through their evil dark arts, do the same thing. Then you jump ahead to 7, 20 to 22. The Lord says, starting in verse 19, the Lord said to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the water of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then you jump ahead to chapter 8. You've got verses 6 and 7. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So multiple times we've got God performing miraculous things, and then the lie, the falsehood, imitating it and presenting, hey, look, what God can do, our magicians can do. What are we, what's, going on, what's going on? But then we come to 8, 16 to 19, and eventually the lie crumbles. Chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were, gnats, there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I mean, that should offer us so much reassurance and comfort. Eventually, the lie crumbles. Eventually, what's presented to be true falls apart, and only true truth remains. This is something we see throughout Scripture. And so we can't be surprised by this tactic. We can't be shocked at the idea that the lie would try and imitate truth. Are there any fishermen here? We're allowed to raise our hands in church. I promise you won't get in trouble. There are fishermen here. What do you do with the hook? You bait it to make it look appealing, to make it look enticing. What does Scripture say? John 8, 43 to 44, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So first we have to understand our adversary is inherently, by definition, by his nature, a liar. Everything he does is a lie. Everything he says is a lie. This is who he is. And then you go to 2 Corinthians 11. This is 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 3, and then 12 to 15. 
You've got, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He began with cunning back in the garden. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Then jumps down to verse 12. What I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, hey, the serpent, the devil, the adversary began with lies and deception and cunning all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Eve. And that's how it continues today. His workers continue to do it today. What do they do? They boast and they pretend that they're working on the same terms we are. They're pursuing the same goals we are. They're offering the same gospel we are. And he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And we can hear that, and we can get pessimistic, or we can get worried, or we can get anxious, or we can get fearful. Man, if everything's walking around disguised as the truth, what in the world? Like, I just, should I be intimidated by everything? Should I, should I not engage with anything? Like, what do I do? And so it can get overwhelming to consider the fact that our enemy is so, so good at cunning deception. But that's why I love going back to Exodus. And as we see throughout scripture, that every single time, eventually the lie crumbles and truth wins out. And so what do we have to do? We don't have to concern ourselves with trying to identify every single lie that pops up. We have to concern ourselves. We have to give ourselves. We have to devote ourselves to knowing the truth. Because then anything that pops up that's not in line with the truth, it's easy. The, the band Newsboys, they have a great song and they have a lyric in one of their songs and it says, we know a line is crooked because we know what's straight. I mean, think back to elementary school and we've used this illustration before. When you're in school, when you're teaching your kids, do you spend time trying to teach the children everything that two plus two does not equal? Hey, two plus two does not equal one. It does not equal three. It does not equal five. It no, hey, two plus two equals four. So if you do the equation and you wind up with any answer other than four, something's wrong. What's scripture say? Truth wins out. This is what we're called to know because this is who Jesus is and this is who we're called to know. Luke 18, 8, 17, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. John 8, 31 to 32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The lie just perpetuates captivity. The lie just perpetuates despondency. The lie just perpetuates sin and strife and trouble. The truth embodied incarnate in the person of Christ sets free. And so when we go back to Exodus with this in mind, the lie versus the truth, the imitation versus the real thing, the phony versus the genuine article, where do we see freedom come from? From the side of truth. And what specifically, what lie do we specifically see torn down in these 10 signs? This is so, so cool. If you want to try and take notes, by all means, take notes. You know me, I'm never going to discourage that. But if you want to just sit and enjoy how awesome God is, like this is a great sermon to just sit back and say, you know what? 
I'm just going to simply bask in God's majesty and in God's power and the fact that God's not afraid to remind his people of it. Because what lie does God decimate? I mean demolish in these, these moments in, in the history of his people. He abolishes, he destroys any notion that there is another God besides him. God goes full nuclear blast, apocalyptic on idolatry. It's so cool. So what we see in the signs is that, yeah, if lies fall, that means that false gods fall. So the things that we place up on a pedestal in our own life, I'm sorry, actually, I'm not sorry to burst your bubble. It's going to fall. It's going to fail. If your source of hope is your job, if your source of confidence and peace is your bank account, if your source of security is your health, your family relationships, that's not a God worth following. And that false God will ultimately fail. God makes it very clear what he's doing with these signs. Listen to what it says in scripture. Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Exodus 15, 11 to 12, Moses' prayer after they've come out of Egypt. Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Exodus 18, 8 to 11, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Numbers 33, 3-4, they set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborns, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. God's playing the trump card. God is, is showing the people, I'm God. Anyone else, anything else claiming to be worthy of your worship? Anyone else, anything else claiming to be worthy of your devotion? No, watch what I do to it. And this is where it gets really fun. This is where it gets really cool, really specific, really detailed. So let's look at the signs. Let's look at the signs. Let's look at what God did and why they matter. So the Egyptians had a God, Hapi, God of the flooding of the Nile. Not of the Nile River itself, but the specific flooding of the Nile. This was a huge event in the Egyptian cultural life cycle. The flooding of the Nile, which brought water to the crops, irrigated their fields, was their source of life. And so they worshipped the God of the annual flooding of the Nile. This is one of the most important and powerful Egyptian gods in this river region. I mean, like one of their heavy hitters. He was known as, one of his names, he had many names, one of his names was Lord of the Fish, Birds, and Marshes. Hoppy is the Lord of the Fish and the Birds and the Marshes. 
So what does God do in Exodus 7, 17 to 21? Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. What happened to the Lord of the fish? When Yahweh stepped into the scene. Demonstrates his power. Okay, well what about Apis? The sacred bull for the Egyptians. Who protected their livestock. Who governed over their herds. Who they worshipped for providing for them in this way. Well, what's it say in Exodus 9, 1-6? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the fields, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. Talk about a cool verse. The Lord says, tomorrow at this time, I will do this thing. And the next day at that time, the Lord did this thing. Nothing turned him back. Apis didn't stop him. What happened? The livestock died. The livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. I love that detail. And Pharaoh sent, well, wait a minute. No, surely this was some explainable. Surely this was some natural cause that affected the livestock. So Pharaoh sent, no, no, no. There's no way this really didn't touch the livestock. No, the livestock of Israel is fine. The livestock under Apis's protection, dead. Unequivocally, dead. Okay, who else do we have? You have Geb, the god of the earth worshipped by the Egyptians because he was the one who allowed crops to grow. Geb was the one who we need to praise because he provides for our sustenance through the fields. He's in charge and he protects our crops. What do we see in Exodus 9, 22 to 26? Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then you've got Exodus 10, 12 to 15, continuing with the assault on Geb. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may become upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has never been seen before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Geb had a nickname or a name. He was also considered the father of snakes. So when the magicians turn their staff into snakes, well, yeah, that's because Geb has the same power. Who's snake? Ate the Egyptian snakes? Come on. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. I, I mean, it's incredible to watch his sovereignty on display. What else do we have? We have Ra or Ray, one of the most important gods in Egyptian culture. One of their very top gods. Ra was the one who had dominion over the sun. Ra was the one who had dominion over day and night. He brought the sun up every morning. The sun that gave them light to see. The sun that helped their crops grow. This was due to the power and might of Ra, the god of the sun. What happens in Exodus 10, 21-23? Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Where's Ra? I thought, Ra, I thought you controlled the sun. God has no respect for false gods. God has no interest in respecting the idea of false deities and idols. He dismantles them. I mean, piece by piece, tears apart the notion that anyone other than he is God who is worthy of worship and devotion and following. It's, it's incredible. Like, mind-blowing. It's so cool that we have this narrative event. And if you look at Egyptian religion, they had gods over health and disease and pestilence. So what does God do? He sends boils. He attacks their hell. Like they had God over, they had gods over the storm. God sends storms. Everything about this is demonstrating what he said from the start. This is not to just be random or arbitrary. God said, This is so that they will know, that the people of Israel will know that I am Lord. So in our own lives, man, we have got to protect and guard our hearts against ever getting to the place where God needs to step in and destroy our idols. We have got to be on guard against in our own hearts, our own lives, of making sure we are always only truly ever worshiping Yahweh, the Lord alone. Because I don't want to be at a place where he has to come in and break down my idols bit by bit and tear them down around me. God proves that he alone is God. And what's the final, maybe scariest of all of these? See, ultimately, 
and the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian religion, ultimately, Pharaoh was God. Pharaoh was God. And the firstborn son of Pharaoh was born a God with the ultimate power, with the ultimate sovereignty. So what is the very last piece of the wall that gets torn down? Exodus 11, 4 to 7. I don't know how I would react to this. This is, this is horrifying to consider. The arrogance being brought to a screeching stop and that painful realization of, man, this idol is nothing. What I thought had power, what I thought had meaning, what I thought had purpose was taken away in an instant. 11, 4 to 7. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. What do we see in Exodus 12, 29 to 30? At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. Guys, please, we, we cannot be so arrogant in our idolatry that we come to a place of needing them torn down like this. It has to be about worship for the only true Lord. That's where our hearts need to be. God alone is God. He alone is worthy of our everything, of our best, of our devotion. Because he is capable at any moment of proving himself to be thus. And there are painful, painful consequences when he has to prove himself to be Yahweh. One of the other phrases that we see throughout Exodus, throughout these sections, is God knowing Pharaoh's heart. Osiris was the chief god of the afterlife. And the key moment of Egyptian afterlife was when Osiris weighed your heart to determine whether or not you were worthy of eternal you know, joy and celebration and good or not. No. God alone weighs the heart. So we can fake it. We can put on a smile. We can put on our Sunday morning facade and show up and pretend like our heart belongs to the Lord. But like Egyptians had to find out. Like we learn through Scripture God alone weighs the heart and he knows. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Kings eight thirty nine. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive is a prayer to the Lord. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Psalm 44, 21, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Proverbs 21, 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Everything in Scripture points to God alone is God. And that's, that's awesome. I use words like terrifying, scary. 
you know, I don't know what I would do if the idol I had put my faith in was torn apart like that right in front of me so painfully. But for those of us who know Christ, we don't have to have that fear. We don't have to worry about that. We know God. God knows us. God has chosen us. God has adopted us. We are conquerors and co-heirs with Christ, the only true God. Why does the Bible include those details of, oh, in the land of the Egyptians this happened, but not in the land of the Israelites? Where did the Israelites live? Not Egypt. They lived in Goshen, just to the side of Egypt. Yeah, how many of us are like, whoa, cool fact. They lived in Goshen. What did most polytheistic or idolistic religions at that time believe? That the God was tied to a very specific geographical location. So you were God on this side of the pulpit, but not on that side of the pulpit. Read in 2 Kings 5, when Naaman is healed and he's traveled and he gets healed, what does Naaman's immediate reaction show? He says, okay, can I take some of this dirt back with me in case I need to be healed again? Why? Because Naaman was part of a religious system that believed that it was the physical ground where the God had power. So if I take the physical ground back with me, now I still have that God's accessibility. So where did God perform these signs and wonders? Not in Goshen. I mean, well, partly in Goshen, but... God went into not his territory and demonstrated his power, demonstrated his sovereignty. It's, it's incredible. What does scripture say? Just listen to these verses. This is 1 Samuel 5, starting in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. What do we have in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 18? To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who bring, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah 46, 1-10. Bell bows down an idol. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. 
These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from place to place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Bible could not be any more clear. God could not make it any more clear to the people of earth that he alone is God. And the scariest thing of all of this is that all the way from the beginning, God's people struggled with forgetting this. So I really hope that this fires you up and encourages you and exhilarates you and reminds you of the privilege of following and knowing the one true Yahweh. If you don't know him as God, please come talk to me. Please. If you do, awesome. Celebrate in that and allow Yahweh, allow he who knows the heart to check your heart and call you on any idols that may be popping up. Because when God proves himself to be God, it's a significant thing. This week, as we consider this, I want us to continue to enjoy the reminder that God alone is God. And he's not afraid to get in the face of idols. He's not afraid to tear them down. So let's read 1 Kings 18 this week. We'll all read the same chapter. Read 1 Kings 18, which has the funniest line in all of Scripture. Uh, if you're familiar with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and you know where I'm going with this, great. If you don't, do yourself a favor and look up what Elijah means when he says, maybe your God is busy, because it is quite hilarious. And this is a really fun chapter of Scripture. Pray is led by the reading. If God convicts us, hey, we've allowed idols to pop up, confess, ask for forgiveness, ask for the strength to tear the idols down. If we're in a good place with the Lord and we know we need to keep growing in holiness, I'm never saying we arrive there until we die. Like We need to always keep growing in holiness, but if we go before the Lord and we ask him to check our hearts and we say, okay, you know what? I'm worshiping you. Praise God in that. Rejoice in that. So praise led by the reading. Let's continue to remember Exodus 4, 11 to 12. And then just simply praise God for being the one true God and for being known by the one true God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are, that you and you alone are God. Thank you that you remind us of this, that all that happened in Exodus was to demonstrate that you are Lord and that you are worthy of worship. God, forgive us for when we forget that. Forgive us when we take our eyes off of it and we allow idols to come into our lives. Spare us in those times, God, but humble us and bring us back to you. 
And may we go out strengthened knowing that there is not a single lie that can stand up to you. There's, there is not a single idol that can come into your presence without falling down and falling to pieces. Who will we compare to you? Nothing. What a joy. What a confidence. No wonder Scripture says that we are crushed, but not destroyed. That we are afflicted, but not done in. You're with us. You and you alone are God. So we praise you for that. Lord, and remind us that there are hurting, broken people out there whose idols have fallen apart in their lives and they need to know you. So burden our hearts. Each and every one of us, give us a zeal and an ownership for pointing this broken world to you, the only true God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.